When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Hey there, I'm Jason Gotts, and this is Think Again, a Big Think podcast. And this week, I'm joined by my sometime co-host, Eric Sanders, and by Jason Silva, the mutant mad genius stepchild of Timothy Leary, Ray Kurzweil, William Gibson, and should I mention anyone else, Jason? Wow, I love that. <laughs> Somebody once said Neo from the Matrix was part of that mashup. Maybe Perfect. so, and then and then Sui Generis, just himself. Jason is like yes. nobody else. The one and only is uh, Eric. Will tell you a little bit. Yeah, more. he's the host of National Geographic's Emmy Award nominated show Brain Games and the creator of Shots of Awe, an incredibly popular YouTube series of videos that distills inspirational futurist thinking into little nuggets of just awesome mind blowingness. Thank you for that. So here's how this works, Jason. Each week, Big Things producers unearth a gem from our interview archives and they surprise us with it. We have no idea who the expert is or what they might be talking about. We listen and then we respond. Could be about anything. Vampire bats, maybe. You cool with that? This is great, actually. True, true, spontaneous whimsy will ensue, I'm sure. There's going to be a lot of whimsy to this. (laughs) Mostly whimsy. Yes. Okay, so uh, Elizabeth, what do you have for us today? This is a clip from Sarah Lewis, who is an art curator and historian. And uh, I chose this clip because it's an exploration of the past, and I'm curious about the implications that you think this suggests for the future. One of the reasons that I love writing about the arts, you know, curating work, is, is not even so much that you're able to honor one person's expression and, and pay tribute to that, but because of how much it can shift things in us, you know. Frederick Douglass during the Civil War surprised his audience when he spoke about this idea, you know. His idea was that it wouldn't be combat that would get America to have a new vision of itself, but pictures, right? Pictures, he said. And the thought pictures that they create in the mind are the way that we can kind of slip in the back door of our rational thought and see the world differently. I love that. His speech was called Pictures in Progress, and then he retitled it Life Pictures. And as I came across the speech, I thought, this is why I do what I do, you know. How many movements have begun in the world when one person's work, one song, one uh, impactful aesthetic experience shifted things entirely for a leader, for a group of people, you know. The environmental movement really catalyzed and began when we saw that Earthrise image, you know, taken from the Apollo 8. And we saw that our world was in an environment that we needed to honor. 
Or think about the way that Brown versus Board of Education would not have had Charles Black there, that constitutional lawyer, if he hadn't seen Louis Armstrong perform that night in 1931 in Austin, Texas. And in that moment, say to himself, well, there is genius coming out of this man's horn. And if there's genius in this black man, then segregation must be wrong. And to know in that moment that he was walking towards justice, as he put it, when he describes what got him to be on the Brown versus Board of Education case, you know. There's so many examples where really aesthetic force, more than rational argument alone, has been what has shifted and turned the tide, you know, in the face of massive injustice. So I think of the arts as far more than just a respite from life, a kind of a luxury. I see it as a a galvanic force, really, that undergirds some of our most impactful changes and movements in this country and in this world. That was amazing. Oh, yeah, totally. And I think that what makes this, what she's saying, so incredibly important is that it seems to me like we live in a time where it's really easy to, because there is such strength such power behind the quantification of everything and the sort of data gathering of everything that it's very easy and there's a lot of discourse out there that sort of dismisses and minimizes the impact and the power of things like the arts as opposed to things that can be quantified, you know? Mm -hmm. Or if they Um, measure it, it's like how many many likes did this picture get as opposed to what was the aesthetic or spiritual impact of... That right, so even right. subjectivity now is quantified in terms of like how many people are liking exactly. it. Exactly. Instead of asking, how did this move you and transform you and change your outlook on the world? I mean, I think that that raises the issue of the tension between art and commerce, and it tends to feel like we live in an age where if art hasn't been wrapped as something that is commercialized, right. then it, it's relegated to kind of cult status. You know, it's on the side. If it doesn't make money, if it can't be sold, but if it, but even if it can't be sold, then it can't be seen. You know, it, yeah. where where is it? You know, yeah. if people don't know about it, if it's not hanging in a museum and sold for a hundred million dollars, and if it's not getting a thousand billion trillion likes on self on, on <laughs> Facebook, then then where does it go? You know, right. where is that space to explore subjectivity and individual expression and sort of the, the, the yeah. And I think that's why, like, someone like Banksy, although I think at this point probably Banksy, I think he has done a couple of, like, secret art shows and sold his stuff for megabucks. For charity, I believe. But were they? I think some, well, no, not all of them, but some of them were. Okay, I mean, he's got to live. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Come on, let's let Banksy, you know, make a living. But, but, But a lot of the stuff that he's doing out there, which granted is promotion for his art, but probably the amount of money if he's earning, whatever he's earning off his art, is like infinitesimal compared to how huge he is. Mm-hmm. He's giving it to the world and he's making an impact in a really meaningful way that is essentially impossible elsewhere. Like you don't really see anybody else doing that. Well, yeah, I mean, I find that he's a, definitely a, a brilliant and almost extreme example of sort of an installation artist. He or he, she, we should yes, say, I guess, right? Exactly. right? I don't know. He, his art is on sort of the <laughs> massive stage in terms of the public spaces that he uses and it's subversive and has such profound commentary embedded in such a whimsical way that you cannot help but want to talk about it. But there's a lot of artists out there that I think are not able to create a stage for their art that way and that perhaps are struggling, you know, with finding a way to articulate those interior states. 
That's right. I mean, not everybody can be Banksy, and Banksy, right. having done what Banksy yeah. did, like that stage is sort yeah. of taken in yeah. a way. So you have to invent not only art, but an entire uh, context for your art in order mm-hmm. to be truly original in mm-hmm. a place where, in a, <laughs> a, in a medium, world, if you will, in right? a world that wants to kind of yeah. channel your art in very right. specific well, right. directions. And the reason is because we're simply dealing with bandwidth anxiety. I mean, because we right. have the tools for everybody, not just to be a, a passive consumer, but an active publisher, it also means that we're drowning in the noise of everybody having something to say. But, you know, once in a while... You know, it's like that, that, that line that says, that attention if sudden and close graduates into surprise and that into astonishment and that into stupefied amazement. I mean, when I walk into a museum, if I'm in the right mind state, right. I can spend three hours staring at one picture and yeah. wonder about the musings and the dreaming of the artist that captured that picture or the characters in that picture and what their lives are like. I mean, you can really lose yourself in, the, yeah. in one person's unique POV forever. But I'm wondering, is the responsibility on the perceiver, on the observer, to bring the you know, possibility of aesthetic arrest to the moment? It's all about mediating subjectivity. I mean, when you go to the movie theater, there's a reason you sit in the dark. Yeah. There's a reason you're not allowed to look at your phone. Right. There's a reason <laughs> the screen is really big. So that by yeah. the time you're consuming the art itself, everything that has come before it in terms of designing your experience, has been slowly helping you cross a threshold into a liminal state almost when you're ready to receive. But can so we I think have when you're receiving art, you're, you're very introspective. You're, it's a kind of the, 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 the state that you need to be in to truly marinate in any kind of artistry, I think, is a kind of what David Lenzen calls a fusion of cognition and dream. Then you're not in like your busy mode sure, getting things sure. done in the world. You're like kind of daydreaming, kind of open, kind of ready to interiorize what's coming in and revered and regard it. I was thinking about the Dalai Lama. Sure. I was thinking about um, like we have uh, Paul Ekman, who's a psychologist. He comes in and you know he's been doing work on compassion and like how do you generate global compassion, right? So you know. 100,000 people die in some, like, tribal conflict somewhere or, you know, uh, an earthquake or whatever. And everyone on Facebook is like, oh, tragic, tragic, you know, posting photos, whatever. How do we access those things, especially in this world of deluge of information? What is it that, A, like, anyone from the outside can do and, B, we from the inside can or should do to actually be able to feel the consciousnesses of people across the world suffering. That's always been the goal of humanity, right? To create technologies that are truly intersubjective. So, you know, I think that cinema perhaps is the greatest engine of empathy or engine of compassion that exists. I mean, a, a story told cinematically that works well breaks through the screen you know that right. that's not a virtual reality that's the, what Zizek calls a reality of the virtual that's a simulated experience that nonetheless can create a real transformation in the viewer People but not say, if I don't go to the movie because there's 80 percent. million movies like you know <laughs> right. coming through my Twitter well, you there know, you like, go that, that <laughs> is the anxiety that's that's like, you know, where my own efforts, you know, I see a film like Ex Machina, which is a truly oh, yeah. magnificent meditation on artificial intelligence, and I spend the next week tweeting incessantly to the world, please see this movie, <laughs> because this is the kind of movie that all of us need to be subjected to. This is the kind of art that needs to inhabit us and colonize our minds for those two hours. And ultimately, I keep coming back to this notion of mediating attention. I love cinema so much that it's only cinema that I really, truly hand myself over to. Because when I go into the theater, I'm actually saying, I'm not going to resist. 
I'm going to hand myself over to the conductor of the mind, the director, to literally architect, pattern my, my subjectivity for the next two hours. So whatever I need to do to get myself into that receptive state right. versus how I need to be when I go about my business in the world, riding the subway, making sure I don't trip, making sure I don't lose my wallet, those are different kind of consciousnesses. I the consciousness that's ready to receive art and the consciousness that's basically surviving day to day, those are two different worldhoods that we inhabit. I completely agree with you and I think that's not well understood and I think people stumble into movies out of their business consciousness and, come and then are like, I didn't really like it, you know, because yeah. they're like, you know, the I missed whole the first time, ten minutes. They were thinking about what they had to do later or whatever. You know, I'm thinking particularly about a production I once saw by Peter Brook, the great director, who had done a production based on Oliver Sacks' book, The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat. And and I, I watched that thing and, like, and, and there's something, you know, when theater works, and that's a space for which fewer and fewer people, I think, can clear their minds, you know, yeah. to actually make yeah. room. But, man, there was one character in that who, you know, he had a neurological problem where every day he would wake up having forgotten every single thing about his life and who he was. And every day he would be taken from the little clinic where he lived to go experience the ocean, which was a few steps away. And every day he would have this total experience of, you know, all-encompassing awe as he saw the ocean for the The first first time. time. And watching the actor do that on stage, I mean, I can think of very few things that had that kind of impact on me where I'm just like, I get what it is to be this guy. Like, I was crying, you know? And film, film is now the only thing, more or less, that'll do that for me because... Everything's so noisy, I don't even know which play to go to. Dealing with the everyday requires us to close ourselves off, you know. I don't want to get into a frenzy when there's traffic or when I miss (laughs) the subway. Also, friction we have to deal with every day. But when you see art, you want the opposite of shutdown. You want to open up and you want, like, to be ravished and you want to be, like, you move to tears and you want to cry and and you want to be, like arrested by the experience and so how do you modulate like you're at the DJ booth how do you adjust the treble and the bass and the this and that of experience as it's coming in so it's a two way street the artists can engineer environments that that draw us in in that way and break help to break through that resistance that we can't help but build up on account of all the internet noise and the traffic etc etc and we ourselves can be very selective and also uh, uh, systematic about trying to put our ourselves in the right place yeah. to receive it. Last thing I was thinking about was Tim Ferriss's podcast which I'm kind of obsessed with. He was recently interviewing Rick Rubin. Okay. You know, producer of the Beastie Boys and yeah. every other great album Johnny Cash's American series whatever. Yeah. And Rick made him do the 2-hour interview in a 190 degree sauna at Rick's house. Oh. So essentially, he engineered an environment that was so like physically and psychically unfamiliar and just like disorienting that the interview like any awkwardness or tension that might have been yeah. there, any formality just melted away. The two of them were like, "Ow, the microphone is burning me." You know, and that's like life, life as yeah. art, you know? Completely you curate I mean, your life. Yes, you you have to think of think of your life Think of your subjective experience, your unique POV on the world as like a paragraph, right, that's being written in real time. And the context of where your life is at is whether or not the paragraph is italicized or bold <laughs> or the font right. type that you use. Right, right. You know, we need to curate our lives a thousand percent, you know. To enrich ourselves, we've got to curate ourselves. I mean, how do you quantify meaningfulness? 
it would be nice to have a button for me. <laughs> exactly. you know? They're working on it. Or, Believe me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mark Zuckerberg, if you're listening, we don't want an answer to that question. <laughs> All right. So thank you so much, Jason Silva, yes, for playing you. our crazy podcast game today. Thank you. That was fun, guys. I appreciate yeah. being here. It was here. a huge thank amount of fun. Um, is there anything else we should know or the audience should know about your multimedia, psychedelic, philosophical activities? Yeah. Uh, you know, when I make shots of awe, I'm, I'm trying to do that. Before I even decide what I'm going to riff or rant about, I try to really prime and curate the space in which the ideas will unfold because I, I try to sort of create epiphanies and then set them to music. So again, it's all about how we can artfully turn our experience into an aesthetic experience. And so this is why this conversation has been so rich for me because this is what I think about all the time. So, Jason, would you do us the honors of pushing the button on the random quote generator and sharing with our audience the quote of the day? I love to. Okay, quote of the day coming up, guys. Ready? We came, we saw, we kicked its ass. Bill Murray, Ghostbusters. <laughs> Once again, <laughs> unexpected brilliance from the random quote generator. Thank you, everyone, for listening to us and Jason Silva today on Think Again. Thanks, guys. That was fun.